0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 4. This morning we'll be looking at verses 43 through 54. John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. Please give your attention to God's Word. After the two days he departed for Galilee. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. One of the most enjoyable responsibilities that uh, we elders have in the church is actually receiving people into membership in the church, or as we call it, partnership in the gospel. We really enjoy those interviews We get a chance to hear people who are relatively new to the church, to hear about their background, their family, their lives, their hopes, their dreams, their needs. It's a great opportunity to connect with people. But, of course, the very center of that interview is their testimony. How they came to know Jesus Christ. Their spiritual journey from being lost in the darkness... To coming into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, of course, no matter what else we may ask, no matter how we may inquire about their gifts, their talents, their involvement in the church in the past, whatever we may ask, what's really important and really what the whole basis of membership in the church is about is what we call a credible profession of faith. If you're a believer, you should be a member of the church. And if you're a believer, We'd love to have you become a member of our church, of this local body of believers. But it's interesting, when you listen to so many of those interviews, there are some things that come through as commonalities, things that we hear over and over again, because they're typical to the spiritual journey of many believers. One of those things is that we often hear from people, you know what, I can't really say when I first believed. A lot of people will say, especially if they are raised in a Christian home, a lot of people will say, you know, when I was five years old, six years old, seven years old, I asked Jesus into my life. I I gave my life to Christ. I believed. But then often when you hear that as part of a person's spiritual journey, what they'll say is, you know, when I got to be a teenager, I kind of got away from it. You know, I got wrapped up in the things of the world, and I kind of went astray. Sometimes it's not until they get to college. Sometimes it's not until they become a young adult and get off on their own. But many, many times they'll say, I had a period of straying. But then they'll say some crisis came into their life, or maybe they began to have children. Not that having children is a crisis, but in some ways it is. But things like that will come along, and they'll start to reassess, and they'll start to look at their life again. And they'll really say, yeah, no, then I, I recommitted my life to Christ. Maybe that's the way they put it. Or maybe they'll say, I really believed. But it does raise the question, a lot of times, many of us can't answer that. When did you really believe? Did you believe as a child? Did you believe when you were a doll? When did you really believe? Some people, especially in some theological circles these days, they say that we evangelicals do too much navel-gazing about our faith. We're too caught up about whether our faith is real or not, whether we're really believing. And we should focus more on what we're doing, whether we're really living out the faith. And there's a point to be made in that. But I go back to what Paul said. The Apostle Paul said when he was talking to professing believers who were living in disobedience in Corinth, this is what he says in uh 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. So Paul expects us to be looking at. The faith to determine, is this the real kind of faith that the Holy Spirit gives that Jesus talked about in chapter three with Nicodemus? The kind that comes upon you like the wind and it transforms you and gives you a new birth from above. Or is this some other kind of faith? If you listen to the polls, they'll tell you that 92% of Americans say they believe in God. And of that 92%, 80% of them will say they believe in Jesus. Most of those people are wrong. Most of those people think they believe in Jesus, but the belief that they have is not the kind of faith that the Apostle Paul is telling us to look for. Here in John chapter 4, John rebukes people, John actually reveals to us Jesus rebuking people who come to him believing, but believing for the wrong reasons. That's what really jumps out at you in this passage. That these people are seeking Christ and they're believing in him at some level, but Jesus tells them it's not the right kind of belief. In particular, he challenges one man to test his faith, to test his belief. Notice that this man that we'll be looking at in a moment, he comes to Jesus because he believes... That Jesus has the power to heal. Jesus has the power to heal his son. And then if you look at verse 50, Jesus tells this man that his son was healed. And it says at that point, the man believed. And then if you look down at verse 53, after he arrived home to find his son recovering, it says, and he himself believed and all his household. Now, that's interesting. He believed in Jesus enough to come to him for a miracle. But then subsequently, he believed in the word of Christ when he told him to go. His son was healed. And then finally, he believed in Christ when he saw that the word of Christ was fulfilled and his son was healed. When did he really believe? When did he really believe? So we're going to be looking at different kinds of faith this morning. If you look at verse 43... It says Jesus, at this point, to kind of bring you back to where we are in our story, Jesus had just spent a couple of days in the Samaritan town of Sychar. He had met the woman at the well. He had gone back to the town with the women and with his disciples to teach them about himself. But it says here, as you pick up in verse 43, that he continues on from Sychar through the country of Samaria, into the Jewish area. Again, he's going out of Samaritan area now, back into Jewish area, but not into Judea, Judea, where Jerusalem is, but into the area known as Galilee. And it's interesting, if you compare this with the other Gospels, what you find out is that Jesus will spend the next 16 months with Galilee as his home base. He would go to Jerusalem on occasion, but his home base and the focus of his ministry was in Galilee. Well, look, interestingly, in verse 44, it gives the reason why Jesus went to Galilee. It says, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. The word for there means that it's a reason. It says he goes to Galilee and here's the reason. It's because a prophet has no honor in his hometown. Now, we know that Jesus' hometown, according to the scriptures, is Nazareth. Yes, I know he was born in Bethlehem. But everywhere where it talks about Jesus and gives him a title, it it refers to his hometown. It refers to Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth was his hometown. Nazareth was next door to Cana. Nazareth was in Galilee. Jesus was considered a Galilean because he was raised in Nazareth. Why, then, would Jesus consciously go to his home area if he knew, as he said on several occasions in the Gospels, that a prophet has no honor in his hometown? Seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Wouldn't he go somewhere else where he would get a better hearing, where people would believe in him more easily? Well, it helps to understand if you go back to the beginning of chapter 4. Look at the first couple of verses. It says there the reason why Jesus left Judea in the first place. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, John the Baptist, it says he left Judea and departed for Galilee. Jesus left Judea precisely because he was becoming more popular. He was becoming more known. People were coming into him more and more. It's the same reason that Jesus often in his ministry told those, especially early in his ministry, told people whom he had healed or whom he had cast demons out of, he told them, don't tell anyone what's happened to you. Again, that's counterintuitive. Why would he tell them not to tell other people about what he had done for them? It's because he didn't want the kind of fame that the world gives. He doesn't want the kind of celebrity status that the world gives. He didn't want masses of people flocking to him to see his signs and wonders. Because if nothing else, certainly would have been a distraction, would have made it difficult for him to get the word taught that he wanted taught. But it also would have brought the Jewish authorities down against him prematurely. From a horizontal perspective, of course, the Lord is sovereign over all this. But Jesus consciously avoided the kind of fame and celebrity that the world showers on those that can do what he was doing. So he purposefully, that's what John is saying here, he purposely went to his hometown. He purposely went to his home region because he knows that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. He knew that these people would be skeptical of him because it was his home area. And therefore, it would tip down, so to speak, that fame and celebrity. Well, in light of this, if you read on to verse 45, it sounds almost like a contradiction because it says, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. They received him warmly. They were excited to see him. They had heard about his miracles. They had heard about his signs. They had heard about his teaching. And so they welcomed him to Galilee. But what we realize very quickly, if you look at his ministry in Galilee, is that their view of him was skewed, distorted, and therefore their belief in him turned out in most cases, the vast majority of cases, to be false. And so this brings us to the first kind of belief in Jesus that this text portrays for us. What I'm calling cultural belief. Cultural belief. In other words, it's the kind of belief that a fish has about the water it swims in. This is what I know because this is my surrounding. This is my culture. This is what the people around me believe. So this is what I believe. It's environmental belief. It's the belief of your family, it's the belief of your peers, it has a powerful influence on what we believe to be true. And for those who believe in Jesus, many of them have what I would call a cultural belief. I believe in Jesus in this way because this is what everybody around me believes. It's interesting. Listen to what happened when Jesus, in a little while, and just a shortly beyond the passage we're looking at now, in terms of time and chronology, over in Mark chapter 6, it talks about when Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. Listen what happens there. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 of Mark 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, "'Where did this man get these things?' And he could, it goes on to make the comment, and he couldn't do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Did you notice what it was that caused the Nazarenes, the people of Nazareth, not only to be slow to believe, but even to quickly become hostile to whom Jesus was revealing himself to be because they said, hey, He's that little carpenter boy who used to live down the street. We know his mother. We know his sisters, his brothers. He can't possibly be who he claims to be. He can't possibly be the Messiah. He can't possibly be the Son of God. They were blinded by their culture. They knew what a Nazarene was like. They knew what a small-town boy was like. They knew what a carpenter was like. They knew what the family of Joseph was like. And so they were blinded by what their culture believed about Jesus. Matter of fact, over in Luke chapter 4, it says, after this, they drove him in anger out of town and almost threw him over the cliff. But he miraculously walked away. That's the reception that Jesus got in his hometown of Nazareth. At some point, Usually it's somewhere between middle school and the end of college. But at some point, all of us has to ask ourselves the question, these kinds of questions about our basic beliefs in life. Do I believe this because I have fully investigated and confirmed it and have embraced it? Or do I believe this because this is what my parents believed? Or do I believe this is because what my church at home taught? Or do I believe this because this is what my school taught me? Why do I believe what I believe about Jesus? And we have to challenge those cultural blinders. Have you absorbed what you believe about Christ from your environment? Or have you really investigated the claims of Christ in his word. You know, beliefs about Jesus are a dime a dozen and as many different types of beliefs about Jesus as you have cultures in the world. Atheists believe certain things about Jesus. Muslims believe certain things about Jesus. In Western culture, you believe certain things about Jesus. In third world cultures or Asian cultures, you believe certain things about Jesus. If you're raised Catholic, you believe certain things about Jesus. If you're raised Protestant, you believe certain things. If you're raised in a liberal church or a conservative church, these can all give us blinders, cultural blinders, that prevent us from seeing who he truly is. And so we must go to Christ. I was raised with a rural American Methodist understanding of who Jesus is. And when I got to college, I spent years in college, wrestling through what the Scriptures really taught. Thankfully, I went to a college, a Christian college, that that taught the Word of God and caused us to dig deep into the Word of God. And I had to challenge all of my assumptions about who Jesus was and what His kingdom looked like and what salvation was all about. And God, by His grace, opened His Word to show me, not that I've got it all figured out. I know I still have cultural blinders, and that's why we always have to keep going back to the Word of God. To be sure that we're believing in the Jesus of God's Word and not the Jesus of our own culture. And so I would ask you this morning to, to just test yourselves, examine yourselves, like Paul says, and say, do I believe what I believe about Jesus because this is what my culture has taught me, what my family has taught me, what my peers have taught me, what my school has taught me, or do I believe what I believe about Jesus because it's what the Word of God says about Jesus? Well, the Galileans go on to show another way in which they welcome Jesus without truly honoring Jesus, according to the text. And that's the second kind of belief I want to look at, which is temporal belief. In other words, belief for the here and now. Belief for this time. Belief for this world. Belief for what I can see with my eyes. Look at verse 46. It says, When Jesus... And the disciples got to Cana in Galilee. And, of course, we know Cana because back in chapter 2, that's where Jesus had turned water into wine at the wedding. When they got to Cana, there was a government official. uses the word official here. Probably this guy, he was a Galilean Jew who was probably in the court of Herod Antipas. And so he was a nobleman. And this official, this Jewish Galilean official, comes to Jesus and he begs him to heal his dying son. Now, if you can just put yourself in this man's shoes for a moment, especially if you're a parent, I don't know of a deeper heartache that a parent could have, a feeling of greater desperation and helplessness than to be watching your child dying, knowing that they're dying and not being able to do anything about it. And realize that this young man, this child, this young man, however old he was, would have had the best medical care that was available because of the resources that his father had. But he had done all he could do, and his son was still dying. And he begs Jesus to heal him, to come and heal him. Important to note that. He wanted Jesus to come to his house in Capernaum and heal his son. But listen to how Jesus responds. Sounds cold and heartless, doesn't it? He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe why did Jesus respond to this man this way? You need to understand that the word, in the, that the word you, the, the pronoun you in Greek, is actually plural. He's not actually speaking to the man alone. He's speaking to the Galileans, this people who give no honor to a prophet in his hometown. He's speaking to these Galileans as a group. And he's saying, you will not believe unless you see signs and wonders. Jesus had seen this kind of belief in signs and wonders earlier back in Jerusalem. Look back in chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, after he had done some signs and wonders, miracles in Jerusalem, it says, beginning in verse 23, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Now, again, what does that word believe mean there? What's interesting, it goes on to say, verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus was skeptical of their belief. Why? Because they came focused on signs and wonders, looking for miracles. So Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Jesus always rejected belief that was solely focused upon signs and wonders. When people came to him looking for miracles, when Herod or the scribes or the Pharisees came with skepticism saying, give us a sign and then we'll believe, he always rejected them. Because that's the kind of belief that says, I'll believe in you, Jesus, as long as you prove yourself to me over and over and over again. says, I will believe in you, Jesus, as long as I see visible evidence of your power and your presence in my life. But once those evidences go away, I have no longer any basis for believing in you. In wartime, they call that foxhole conversion. When need is great and you're desperate, you'll believe. And if you make a bargain, if you prove yourself to me, do a sign and wonder, do a miracle, then I'll believe in you. But then after the war is over and life is good again, many of these soldiers quickly forgot their faith because it was based in signs and wonders. We see it in prison ministry all the time. Prisoners who want to put their faith in Jesus because they're in a time of great need and helplessness. But then they get back out on the street and the vast majority of them go right back to their old life. In some churches, they call it prosperity gospel. I will believe in Jesus and my faith will get stronger as long as I keep seeing signs and wonders, as long as I keep getting richer, as long as I keep getting more prosperous, as long as I keep getting more comfortable in life. Then I'll believe in Jesus more and more. It's a faith based in signs and wonders, not based in Christ. Jesus compared that kind of faith to seed that's sown in rocky ground or seed that's sown in thorny or weedy ground. It gives a brief appearance of genuine belief, but it's quickly proven to be false. It doesn't grow roots. It's choked out. It's faith that's built upon the sand, not built upon the rock of who Jesus Christ is. And when the storms of life hit, it quickly Dissipates and disappears. I mean, test yourself. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself to see if you really believe, Paul says. One way to do that is to look at how you pray. How do you pray every day? Does a typical prayer say, if you could summarize it in a couple sentences, would your prayers basically be, Lord, do some signs and wonders for me? Lord, give me more money. Lord, give me a bigger house. Lord, give me success in my work. Lord, give me a happy marriage. Lord, make me healthy and wealthy and wise. If that's how all your prayers sound, then you are expressing a signs and wonders faith. Lord, keep making my life better. Keep showing me evidences of your power and presence and love in my life so that I can see them every day. And as long as I keep seeing these things, I'll keep believing. But that kind of a prosperity gospel will not stand up to the storms of life. As a matter of fact, that's why we need to rejoice in suffering. That's why we need to praise God that he makes us suffer by his divine will. Not because he hates us. Because he loves us and he wants us to test our faith. To see if it's real. To see if it's built upon the rock. Or to see if it's built upon the sand. He will take away the physical, material blessings in life. So that we can be sure that we're trusting not in the things that he's done for us. And the things that he gives to us. But we're trusting in him. That's why we suffer. Suffering turns me-centered, earthly-centered faith into Christ-centered faith. And so praise God that we suffer by His sovereign will. So that's signs and wonders belief, but it's not real belief. And that brings us to the third type of belief that's portrayed in this passage, which I call saving belief. Genuine faith. Jesus says to this official, Go! Your son will live. Notice what Jesus did there. He refused to go with him. The man wanted him to go with him to do an obvious miracle, not only in his sight, but in the sight of his family and his servants. But he said, no, my word is sufficient. Your son will live. He challenges this official to believe him, believe in him, to believe in his power, to believe in his word alone with no visible evidence. And John says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. He believed the word of Christ and then acted on it. Just like Abraham believed that God was calling him to the promised land and he left without any physical evidence that God would fulfill his promise. This may have left without any physical evidence that his son was healed. But he went home believing, trusting in the word of Christ and the servants come running out to meet him when he gets to his home. And they joyfully tell him that his son was recovering. He was getting better. And he asked them, when did he start to get better? When did the fever break? When did he begin to be healed? And they said it was the seventh hour, which was exactly this man knew when Jesus said, your son will live. Your son is healed. And then notice what it says. Again, verse 53. He himself believed in all his household. That's an important phrase because that's the way the New Testament talks about people coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. The kind of born-again faith and belief, the real faith that the Holy Spirit gives those whom God has chosen. They believed, he believed, and all his household came into the covenant community, came into the church, came into the kingdom. It's the New Testament way that salvation had come to that household. He Fully believed he entrusted his life to Christ. This official progressed from cultural belief about Jesus, the Galilean perception of who Jesus was. He progressed from that to a signs and wonders belief when he came to Jesus saying, Please heal my son. To a belief in the word of Christ when Christ said, I have healed him, even though he had no evidence for it. And then he came to complete saving and trust and faith in Christ when Christ had opened his eyes to see who he was. A day earlier, he had only wanted to see his son spared from death. Now, he has Christ for eternity. He knows Christ. And he would soon know him as the son who was sent by his father to die that he might have life. Now, I'm not saying that signs and wonders faith that believes because you see God working in some remarkable way in your life, I'm not saying that that's necessarily a false faith. In many cases, maybe in most cases it is. But in many cases, it's the first step of faith. And many of us started to come to faith because we saw Christ working in our life in a remarkable way. And it started as a signs and wonder faith, but like this official, if it's a real faith, if it's God-given faith, it's the kind of faith that the Holy Spirit gives, then it doesn't stay there. It becomes a faith in Christ, a trust in Christ, a dependency upon Christ in his word. Let me just turn over for a moment to John chapter 6, because that's really, if you understand this background, it's going to help us when we get to chapter 6. Because in chapter 6 is where you see Jesus confronting Galilean faith head on. Let me just lead you through here real quickly. Look at verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that Jesus was doing on the sick. Large crowds following him. Why? Because they saw the signs that he was doing. And listen, after he at this point, he sits down and he feeds thousands upon thousands of people with only five loaves of bread and two fish. But listen to how the people respond. Look down at verse 14 to his miracle. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Thousands of people believe. They believe in Jesus. Isn't it great? Let's build a bigger building because now the church has gotten really, really big now because all these people believe. But again, Jesus rejects that faith. Look at verse 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He resists signs and wonder faith again. And then if you skip down, look at what happens. He goes to the other sea, actually walks across the Sea of Galilee. We'll get to that later. But then he gets to the other side. The crowds follow him around to the other side of the sea. When they get there, listen to how Jesus interacts with them about their inadequate, their false belief. I'm going to pick up the reading in verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that will endure to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the God the Father has set his seal." Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. See, they didn't yet believe. They had signs and wonders faith, but they didn't really believe in Him. And so look at how they respond in verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we might see you and believe, see and believe you? What work do you perform? Stubbornly refusing to believe in Him except on the basis of signs and wonders. And then at that point, he begins to teach them about real faith. And he talks about being the bread of life. That you must feed upon him by faith. He even gets to the point at the end of this passage, at the end of chapter 6, to talking about eating his flesh and blood. Of course, not Literally. But in a sense of that kind of an intimate relationship by faith with Him, of trusting in Him with your whole life, depending upon Him for your whole life, making Him your life. A daily dependent relationship. That's what faith is about. You must not only believe that He died on the cross for for sin, but you must put your trust in Him as your risen Lord the only one who can redeem you from your sins, and the only one who can deliver you into the eternal kingdom and to live every day by faith in Him. That's the gospel. And that's what must be believed. And this gospel is foolishness to mere signs and wonders faith. Look at verse 66. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. The massive percentage of that crowd turned away and no longer followed Him. Because he would not accept a faith based on signs and wonders alone. But listen to the response of the true disciples. Here's where you see what true faith looks like. Look at the very next verse. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Examine your faith, disciples. Test yourselves. Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's what real, spirit-given, born-again faith in Jesus Christ looks like. Daily, moment-by-moment dependence upon the Word of God, trusting in what Christ has done for you, and what He will do for you in the future. That's the basis of your faith. John wrote this gospel, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So how do you believe? What kind of faith do you have? Is your faith in Christ a cultural faith? It's what your family and friends and culture have taught you about him? Or do you believe in him because of the visible evidences in your life? Things that he does for you in the here and now? Or do you accept him as the truth and his word as truth? And do you look to him in faith depending upon him every moment of every day? Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of faith. But there are so many pretenders out there, so many false claims to faith. And Lord, we have our days where we don't exhibit the work of the Spirit in our lives. And we may question, we may doubt, we may wonder, may even for, maybe even for a season of life. Lord, strengthen our faith. Draw our attention not to our temporal needs or what we have done, but draw our attention to Christ, risen from the dead, conquering sin and death and Satan. The Lord the giver of life, the one who has redeemed us and will deliver us into his eternal kingdom. May that be our faith, we pray, because we believe his word. In Christ's name, amen.